with you. Let's go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, today's message is on my view of the Holy Ghost. My view of the Holy Ghost as we're forming our worldview and, and just uh, verbalizing what our worldview is. How do we view the world? How do we view God? How do we view the Bible? How do I view myself? How do I view sin? Uh, uh, how we view the Holy Ghost is part of that worldview structure. And what you believe about the Holy Ghost will have a dynamic impact on your life. In John chapter 14, we get the first teaching about the Holy Spirit's role in the life of the believer. So as you're finding your place there in John 14, just think with me, remember with me where this is all happening. This is happening in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Up to this point, God's people have been living under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was a sacrificial system whereby the people of God had to bring weekly, monthly, annual sacrifices to God. They had a mediator in the priesthood and the high priest. But Jesus has come and he's about to change the entire program and initiate a brand new covenant in his blood. In the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was just a visitor. He would come upon men and women for certain times and for certain functions, but He never stayed with them or indwelt them. It was Jehovah Elohim, God, whose presence was in Israel and in the temple. And then when God the Son is incarnate, then God is present with His people through Christ during His time on earth. But Christ then tells us He's going to go away and the third person of the Godhead is going to come and indwell believers who is the Holy Spirit of God. So while you and I are familiar with the Holy Spirit and His ministry in the life of the believer, you have to recall that in the context in which this is spoken... This is brand new information that Jesus is giving to them, and it's fundamental to our understanding of the Holy Spirit's role in the life of the believer. And so with that in mind, let's read John chapter 14, verses 16 through 21. Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also." At that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again we want to thank you for this opportunity to worship and to deepen our understanding of you and, uh, and of the Godhead. I pray and ask today, Lord, that you would help me to explain these verses that pertain to you as Holy Spirit and that we might understand that role in our lives and because of it, it might enhance and increase our worship and our work for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Do you know it has been said that the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood member of the Trinity? The Holy Ghost is the most misunderstood member of the Trinity. And all it takes is a brief survey and look around at what people say about the Holy Spirit, have written about the Holy Spirit, and attribute to the Holy Spirit to say, you know what, there's some, there's some divergence here. There's some disagreement here. There's some confusion here. And I've heard all kinds of things attributed to the Holy Spirit. I won't go into the laundry list of that today. But I do want to share with you a statement that was written by Francis Chan in 2009 in a book that he published entitled Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. In that book, he wrote this, American affluence has created spiritual cataracts on our eyes and we're in need of a radical answer to the crisis. I believe that missing something is actually a missing someone, namely the Holy Spirit. I thought that was an interesting statement that he said. American affluence. Affluence means uh, wealth, prosperity, the abundance that we have. That because you and I live in such a blessed time and in such a blessed country, that even the poorest of our country are wealthier than a majority of the rest of the world, that it has created what he describes as spiritual cataracts over our eyes and that we need to be reintroduced to the Holy Spirit. I, I, I wanted to flesh that out a little bit as our theme this year is 2020 vision and we're talking about things that impair our vision and how we want to have clear vision. Uh, I read that cataracts are a film of protein that builds up over time in the lens of your eye. And I know that some of you folks have had the cataract surgery already, and you could testify to this. It affects your vision, making it foggy or blurry, and can even change the way that you see color because it keeps light from passing through the lens properly. The solution is surgery. The surgery entails removing the old clouded lens and replacing it with a new clear lens. And I thought, you know what, we need to invite God to do cataract, spiritual cataract surgery on our eyes today. And say, Lord, if I have a misunderstanding of your Holy Spirit, if my view of him is cloudy or foggy or blurred, if the light is not getting through, then please remove that cloudiness today and give me clear sight to see the Holy Spirit as I ought to see him. Because here in lies the danger we are good at saying, you know what, I don't agree with the charismatic movement's view of the Holy Spirit. We may say, I don't believe that he causes people to speak in an unknown tongue, or I don't believe that he causes people to roll around in the floor, or to run around the building, or uh, have a laughing revival, or a barking revival, or turn the feeling in your teeth to gold. Those are all documented uh, uh, movements that have been attributed to the Holy Spirit. And you know what? As conservative, Bible-believing people, we're pretty good at saying, I don't believe the Spirit does all of that over there. But the danger for you and I is on the other end of the pendulum, the other side of the road is a ditch also. And that is where we shut down the Holy Spirit. And while we don't believe in that charismatic wildfire... In turn, we have grieved the Holy Spirit to where He can't get into our building with a key. 
because we have in a knee-jerk reaction tried to move so far away from that misunderstanding that we've moved into another one. And so I think it would do us well today just to go back and review the first lesson that Jesus ever taught about the Holy Spirit. Surely he knew the Holy Spirit. He had the right view of the Holy Spirit. And what he gives to his disciples in John 14 on the night before he is to be crucified and his soon ascension into heaven is fundamental to our understanding of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm just going to kind of give you a list of things and, 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 and describe them a little bit for you. We're going to move around a bit today. And so if you're not real comfortable changing to passive scripture, just, just jot them down and look them up later. But the first thing I would point out to you in, in the right view of the Holy Spirit is understanding that the Holy Ghost is God. The Holy Ghost is God. He is a full-fledged member of the Trinity, of the Godhead. Why do I say that? Well, because of what Jesus said in John 14, 16. He says, And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, another comforter, that He may abide with you forever. That little adjective that is used there, the Greek is alos, it means another of the same kind. And so when Jesus says, hey, I, he's not just saying, I'm going to send somebody else to you. He's saying, I'm going to send another comforter, another of the same kind to you, another of my kind to you. Well, the only kind that is like Jesus is God. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are the same kind, three persons, one substance. And so here he is indicating that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, if that's all that we had in Scripture to go by, you could disagree with that and say, well, I don't know. Maybe that's reading into it. Are you sure that's what the original means? Well, First, I would just look at that word in the original Greek, and I would point out the fact that it's the same word that Jesus used when he was given the parable of the seed and the sower. Do you remember that parable? He said that there was a man that went forth to sow seed, and he sowed some, and it fell on hard packed ground, on the path, and, and the birds came and took it. Then he sowed some, and it fell on rocky ground, and it didn't have much depth, and so it withered away. He sowed some, and it fell on thorny ground, and it began to grow, but then it got choked up, and then some of it, he sowed on good ground, and it brought forth a hundredfold fruit. So, in that passage, is it the same seed that's being sown on all those types of ground? Is it? Not a trick question. Yes, it is. And I, we know that because this same adjective is used. He sowed some on the rocky ground and some on the thorny ground and other on the good ground. It's the same kind of seed that is being sown. When we, when we learn the explanation of the parable that he gives, Jesus says this, the seed is the word of God. And so it's the same seed that's being sown. So it's the same adjective that's saying he sowed some seed and some more of that same seed and some more of that same seed on different soil. That's the adjective that's being used when he says, I will give you another comforter, some uh, one of of the same kind. Furthermore, I would cross-reference it and I'd look at other passages of Scripture at the doctrine uh, of pneumatology, uh, what is the Bible teaching about the Holy Spirit of God? Well, I look back and I think of John 4, 24, where Jesus says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so 
plainly, Jesus says, God is a spirit. I would go forward to Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lie about the price they sold the property for. And Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Ghost? And in the very next verse, he says, you've not lied to men, you have lied to God. And so Peter, the apostle, one of the founding uh, members of Jesus' church, synonymously puts the Holy Spirit and God together as the same person. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, uh, the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And then I would take you to the classic passage on the Trinity, which is 1 John 5.7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. And so if I'm just trying to figure out who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit is, when I look into my text, when I expand out and look into the meaning of the words that are used, and then when I fan out even larger into the New Testament and look at the other mentions of the Holy Spirit of God, I come to the conclusion that the Holy Ghost is God, period. He is not an emanation of God. You see, there's a lot of heretical teachings about the Holy Spirit. There are some that simply say He is the force, right? Like Star Wars, may the force be with you. He is this non-being force that simply has power that can be tapped into like this, this, this uh, theoretical pool in the atmosphere that if we just find the right combination or have uh, the right tool, we can unlock that and flow into our life. There are other heretical teachings that teach that, that, that the Holy Spirit is an emanation of God, that, that like it is what emanates off of God is the force that comes off of Him, like sound reverberating from an instrument having an impact. There are others that simply believe that He is a spirit. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is God, a member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What else did we learn about the Holy Spirit? How should I view the Holy Spirit? Well, first and foremost, I should view Him as God. But then, also, I need to view Him as person. He is a person. Uh, the Bible uses personal pronouns to describe Him. It describes the Holy Spirit as a He, not an It. And so let's do a little, let's do a little grammatical exercise here. Verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, that He, that is modifying the comforter, may abide with you forever. Verse 17, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And so there we have five personal pronouns used in reference to the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. If you look into chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Jesus continues his teaching about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. 
And I would direct you to verse 13 where it says, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. He shall glorify Me, for He shall receive of Mine, and shall show it unto you. I know that's a bit redundant, but God built the redundancy of this into Scripture because the, one of the very first things He wanted you and I to understand about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit's not an it. He's a he. He's a person. He has personhood, just like the person of Christ, the person of the Father. It's the same pronoun that he uses when he says, I will pray the Father, and he will send you the Holy Spirit. And so when I'm viewing the Holy Spirit, I understand that he is God. He is a person. He is not simply a power force. What else can I discern from this? Well, I come to learn that he is indwelling or that he will indwell the believer. So again, back in our text, John chapter 14, uh, verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you for." Ever. That little word abide means to take up residency, to dwell, to make that your place of living. While we have different English words translated from the same Greek word, that same Greek word is used three more times in this text, or three times more in this text. So we find abide in verse 16. And then in verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth. You can draw a line from dwelleth back to abide. He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. It is the same Greek word. So now we are told not only will he come and be with you, make his life with you, abide with you in the sense that Jesus abode with his disciples, but Jesus takes it a step further and says, not only will he abide with you and dwell with you, he will be in you. He will be in you. We can drop down again to verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we, listen, the plural, we, me, and the Father will come unto him and make our abode with him same word so you can draw a line from abode back up to dwell and from dwell to abide it is the same word and this time Jesus speaks on behalf of the Godhead the Trinity and he says we will make our abode with the believer how does God the Father and God the Son make their abode in the believer it is through the person of the Holy Spirit of God the third member of the Trinity and then, again, that same Greek word is used in verse 25. And Jesus says this, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. Present. So you can circle present, draw it back through abode, through dwell, all the way up to abide. That is the exact same Greek word. And Jesus says, Just as surely... As I am present with you here today, speaking to his disciples, my Holy Spirit will be present with you. But in a new, deeper, more intimate level, he will abide in you. He will abide in you. 
Again, we compare Scripture with Scripture. And we think about 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And so here the Bible is teaching that the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of the believer. As a matter of fact, He is the one who regenerates us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The very moment that a person repents of their sin and puts their faith in Christ and Christ alone, the Holy Spirit of God comes into their life, giving them new life, eternal life, and makes His home within them. In fact, Romans 8, 9 says that if anyone have not the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, they are none of His. You aren't saved if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God. Every saved person has the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. There's only one baptism of the Spirit. There's another misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. Some, some groups teach that there are multiple baptisms of the Holy Spirit, but the Bible only knows one baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it happens at the very moment that you put your faith and trust in Christ. You are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. He comes to indwell us. Now, we can be filled with the Spirit or we can quench the Spirit, but we are only baptized baptized with the Spirit one time, and that is at conversion because the Holy Spirit never leaves us and it never requires us to be rebaptized into the Holy Spirit of God. And so the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. Do you realize what big news this is? Never before in the history of God's interaction with people on planet Earth has God come to live inside of someone. Do you remember what it was like in Genesis when God begins to speak to his people? He speaks from a burning bush. He speaks from a smoking mountain. He speaks from a burning fire. He speaks from a mountaintop. He is not in them. He is near them because their sin keeps them from drawing any closer to God. And then, when God the Son comes, God in heaven lays aside His rights and takes upon Himself human flesh so that He can come and be the mediator and the atonement for our sins. And God's presence becomes nearer than ever before. Right? Thou shalt call His name Emmanuel, thus being interpreted God with us. God became a man close than he'd ever been before but I'm telling you that wasn't the closest God has ever gotten and it wasn't the final step Jesus says in John 16 7 it's expedient for me to for you that I go away that's an odd thing to say do you know what he's saying there he's saying it's good for you that I am leaving planet earth hold on a minute how is that good this is the closest we've ever had God in our life you have been our teacher for three years you've shown us things that we've never seen before you've changed our lives how can it be good that you're going away and he says because if I don't go away the comforter will not come and you see in the coming of the comforter the Holy Spirit of God God actually moves inside of every single believer if you're here today and you've trusted Jesus Christ whether you trusted him when you were six or sixty God lives inside of you. The God of the universe, 
The God who spoke the world into existence. The God who died on a cross for your sins. The God who possesses all power in heaven and earth lives inside of you and me. That's the most phenomenal teaching that I've ever studied in all of my Christian life. I don't get it. How can God, the perfect, holy, sinless, all-powerful God of the universe, slum it down here in this low-life, trashy residence of my sinful flesh? It is astounding to me. And if I were just trying to reason it out and ration it out, I'd say, that is not right. He should not have to live in these conditions. He would not live in these conditions. But it's beyond my reason. It is simply revelation. He's declared that. So even though it makes no sense to me, and I don't understand how he could stand it, I believe it. Because he declared it. And I believe that this is where a lot of Christians go afoul. How's that? Well, remember last week when we took a look at ourself, how we should view ourselves? And Paul says, I would not have you think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think, but think soberly of yourselves. I'm afraid that too many Christians don't think soberly of themselves. Because they don't understand that God lives inside of them. That's not thinking too highly of yourself. Thinking too highly of yourself is to think, hey, I don't need God inside of me. I can handle this on my own. I'm a pretty good person. I can manage. That's thinking too highly of yourself. But thinking soberly is to say, look, I am nothing but a vessel of clay. But I have this treasure inside of this earthen vessel. God inhabits me. That's thinking soberly of yourself. Realizing that while you are nothing and can do nothing, John 15, 5, Jesus said, without Him, that the God of the universe came to live inside of you and to make you something. Oh, I'm telling you, it is the most exciting truth that I've encountered all week. You see, because not only does He just live here statically, or complacently. He doesn't just indwell us. He indwells us to empower us. He indwells us to empower us. Let me just ask you, let's think back with me for a moment. Did anything significant happen when the presence of God descended on the tabernacle that Moses built at the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, I think? Do y'all remember anything significant or was it just, you know, daily routine, things as normal? No. It says that this pillar of fire and smoke descended upon this tabernacle and that the presence of God was there in such a way that, that no one could enter in. And do you remember when Solomon dedicated the temple that he built for the Lord? Did anything significant happen when that was finished and he designated that temple? The presence of God once again descended on that temple and filled it so that they could not enter in. 
And then I catch a glimpse of future glory in Revelation 19 when it says that the presence of God is in the temple of heaven and that there's thunderings and lightnings and that man cannot enter in. So let me just ask you for a moment. Just think, just think biblically with me for a moment. If the presence of God makes that kind of difference in a tent and in a building, shouldn't it make a difference in our lives? I mean, if... God Almighty moves in. He brings His power with Him. You see, that's where the power comes from. It is in His presence. I'm reminded of how this was lived out in the life of the early church. In Acts 1, Jesus said, But you shall receive power. After that, after that, after that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. When did they get the power? When the Holy Ghost came upon them. I read in Acts chapter 4 verses 30 and following that they faced opposition and that they were threatened and that they were fearful and they came back to the church and they had a prayer meeting and they said, Dear God, give us boldness to speak your word with power. And the Bible says that the place was shaken and the Holy Spirit of God filled those people and that they went out and spoke the word of God with power and with great boldness. I'm telling you, that it is the Holy Spirit of God that empowers you and I, not only to live for Christ, but to witness for Christ. You have the power within you. Not only do we see that the Holy Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit is a person, the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers, but the Holy Spirit is an advocate. Jesus uses a specific term in reference to the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, I will pray the Father and He shall give you another Comforter. Capital C-O-M-F-O-R-T-E-R. The Greek is paraclete or parakletos. I will give you another Comforter that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So we know that that Comforter that He's referring to is the Holy Spirit. And then we look down at verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And then we look at chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And then one more time in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. We read that word Comforter and we automatically assign our English definition of it, which is one who comforts. And that is one of the dynamics of the word. The word, the original, means to come alongside of another. And yes, we do find comfort in God, in God's Holy Spirit. He comforts us in time of trouble. But that word also was used as advocate. And we find it that way uh, in Romans chapter 8. And so when we read this, we need to understand that the Comforter didn't just come along to pick us up and to blow off our boo-boos and to dab our tears when we get hurt. But that He is the Comforter. He is the Advocate of God who comes and argues God's case at the throne of our life. 
You see, that word comforter is translated also advocate. It was one who came and spoke on behalf of another in a legal setting. Uh, I don't know if you remember when Paul went to trial, and I think it was somewhere around Acts 26 that, uh, that, that uh, um, they brought an advocate from Jerusalem to argue the case on behalf of the high priest. And Paul argued his own case. That guy would have been an advocate. He was coming alongside of them, and he was making their case before the judge, before the decision maker. When you and I think about the Holy Spirit of God, we need to understand that one of his ministries that he performs when he comes to live inside of us is that he is constantly advocating for God in our life. Hey, son, this is not what your father would have you to do. Hey, daughter, that's not how your father would have you to act. He is the one who is the still small voice in our heart, in our mind, who is restraining us and prompting us and compelling us to be more like Christ. I don't know about you, but I need that because old Justin, he has a mind of his own. And you know what? We sometimes can carve out a path and set our face like flint and determine I'm going to go do this. And we're going down the wrong way. And we need the voice of God in our heart saying, hold up a minute. Wait. That's not what God wants you to do. Consider this. Maybe you should apply yourself to this or spend your time on this or give your money to this. He advocates on God's behalf in your life. What a blessing that is. I don't have to just hear from God on the occasions that I open my Bible and read it. While when we read God's Word, we hear God's voice. Did you know that's not the only time that a Christian hears from God? But every single day you have the Holy Spirit of God, whether you have access to His Word or not, who is in your life pleading His cause with you daily. And that's is the change agent that happens in our life. But not only is he the advocate on behalf of God to us, but the Bible goes on to tell us in Romans chapter 8 that he is the advocate on our behalf to God, that when we don't know what to pray for, when we can't even articulate the needs or the things that we are feeling, we have an advocate with the Father who is making intercession for us and is pleading our case to God Almighty so that there is never a misunderstanding between you and your God because you have an advocate who knows you intimately, knows every need that you have that you can't even articulate. And he goes on your behalf to the throne of heaven, and he pleads your case. And he gets what you need for that day and that time in your life. So the next time you're feeling low and you say, man, I don't even know what to pray, remember, you have an advocate who is already interceding on your behalf. So not only is the Holy Spirit of God, uh, Holy Spirit God, a person, He's indwelling, He's advocating, He has some other ministries I'll just touch on quickly as we make our way to the end. He's the teacher. John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever. I have said unto you. Hey, you have a built-in teacher. Every time you read the Bible, every time you make a mistake, 
Every time you go down life's path, you have a present teacher. It is God the Holy Spirit who's saying, Hey, remember this. Think about this. Look at this. And he teaches us. You know, I understand this book can be hard to read, hard to understand. We've been talking about translations in my Next Step class and the differences between those. And I admit there are some challenges to understanding a book that was translated 400 years ago in a type of English that we don't always speak. But you know what compensates for that? You know what helps us? We have a Holy Spirit of God inside of us who illuminates that for us, who helps us understand the things of God even when we don't quite get it at the first and so every time I read my Bible, I pray what the psalmist prays. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Hey, the Holy Spirit of God is the one who wrote this book. Is he not? Holy men of old were inspired as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. If he's the one who wrote it, he surely knows what he meant to say. And so I just ask him, make it clear when I read it. He's our teacher. He's our convictor. In John 16, Jesus says that when he comes, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he goes on to explain that. Hey, you know the Holy Spirit of God is the one who can convict you when you're doing something wrong? I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm not very teachable and I don't want to hear somebody else tell me when I've made a mistake. Anybody ever have that affliction? I really had that bad when I was young. Couldn't stand for, you know, my mom or my aunt or somebody else to remind me, Justin, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, if you weren't out running around, you wouldn't have this problem. And even though I knew it, I just didn't want to hear them say it. You know what's so wonderful about God? He gives us his Holy Spirit who convicts us in the quiet of our heart. That even in our stubbornness, even at our most rebellious, we have to quiet ourselves down at the end of the day to pillow our heads to go to sleep. And somehow, God knows exactly when that is. And the voice of conviction can often speak to us at times when we're willing to hear it. Isn't that so wonderful that God does that for you and I? Sometimes he convicts us in the very moment that we are doing something that we shouldn't do or saying something that we shouldn't say, and the Holy Spirit of God puts the clamp on us, and we know we're in the wrong. That's a gift from God that lost people don't have. They don't have the restraining, convicting force of the Holy Spirit of God, and our chore is to learn not to resist it. So he's our teacher. He's our convictor. He's our guide. He's our guide. In John 16, Jesus went on to say this in verse 12. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. Howbeit, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. You and I have a built-in guide, somebody to take us down this path of life. You know, there's a lot of uncharted waters. How many times have you heard that since the coronavirus? These are unprecedented times. We're on uncharted waters. Aren't you glad that you have an eternal guide who lives inside of you, who can guide you and help you navigate the path that you've never been down before, the situation that you walk into that you weren't prepared before, the news that you get that you were not expecting to get. Remember, you have the Holy Spirit. You've got God on almighty inside of you who will guide you through that if you will just quiet yourself enough to listen as i was reading in preparation for this message i read one uh, writer who lamented that the problem of our age is that we rarely quiet down for long enough to listen to what the holy spirit has to say 
to get direction for our lives. We sang as we began this service, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Make your presence known. And recently I've been preaching and teaching on fasting on Wednesday nights. And I'm telling you, that spiritual discipline of fasting is one of the ways that we can quiet ourselves down and open ourselves up to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our life. You've got a tough decision that you've got to make? Fast and pray. Take those meal times and turn them into prayer times and give that space to God's Holy Spirit to guide you and to give you clarity and discernment and insight. That's what He is in you for. And He will do it if you'll simply follow Him. The problem is we don't always like to follow the God, do we? I mean, we're good old pioneering Americans. We forged our way across this land. We went on, trekked across mountains and people never been on. And I tell you what, we still got the American spirit in us today and we will pioneer our way through. Friend, that's not how God designed for you and I to live the Christian life. We will end up like a lot of pioneers. Dead, injured, and incapacitated at the bottom of a ravine. Bemoaning the fact that we did not have a guide to lead us. God gave you that guy. Then the last thing I would point out to you is that the Holy Spirit endears us to Christ. Look back at our text, John chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Let me tell you something, you cannot keep God's commandments without God's Holy Spirit. If you're going to fulfill, we have His commands, we have His Word, we have that written down and preserved for you and I, but there's no guarantee that we will keep His commands. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us and teaches us and guides us and advocates that we can keep His commands. He that hath my commands and keeps them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Man, it sounds like a love feast in John 14, 21. And one of the most blessed ministries of the Holy Spirit of God is that he endears us to Christ. He is the one that draws us near. He's the one that causes us to think about our Savior to reflect on who He is and what He has done for us. And it is the Holy Spirit of God who is actively working to deepen our love for Him. Can I give you a good Bible illustration of this and we'll be done. There is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God all the way back in Genesis chapter 24. The father is Abraham and the son is Isaac. And Abraham has a servant in his house named Eleazar who is like a son. In fact, Abraham wanted to make him his son and allow him to take up the covenant, but that was not God's plan. And when Abraham's son needed a bride, Abraham called on Eleazar, that faithful servant, and he says, I don't want my son having a bride from this land. Uh, I want you to go back to my homeland, to my people, and I want you to find him a bride. 
And Eleazar strikes off on that journey with camels in tow, loaded down with the riches of the Father. And along the way, he says, Lord, lead me to the one that is there. And he comes to a well to water. And when he comes there, there's a young lady there named Rebecca who waters the camels. And he gets the indication that this is the woman from God. And especially when he asks what family. And he finds out that she's from the right family. She's from Laban's family. And then he asks to go back to the house. And he woos her on behalf of Isaac. And he makes an invitation to come and be the bride of my father's son. And then he gives an earnest or a deposit when he lades her with jewelry and treasures and goods. And then she agrees and he is the one who personally escorts her from her homeland back to the sun all the way telling her about the one she is about to be married to. So much so That when they come into view and they see a man walking in the field, she recognizes a man that she has never seen before. She jumps off her camel. I like the way the old King James, she lit off her camel. She cleaned herself up without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. And she went out to meet her groom. And they lived in love ever after. Can I tell you, that is a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit of God. The Father in heaven sent the Holy Spirit to gather a bride for His Son. And that Spirit comes and He searches us out and He makes the proposal and He he calls us to accept that. He gives us the earnest of the inheritance which is the seal of the Spirit, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4. And then He escorts us from there all the way back until that day when we see our groom and we unite with Him in heaven forever. And all along the way, all along the way, you know what the Holy Spirit's doing? He's not talking about himself. He will testify of me, Jesus said. And that's the ministry that the Holy Spirit's been doing in you since the day that you got saved. He's trying to cause you to fall deeper in love with Jesus every single day. Your view of the Holy Ghost has a direct impact on his ministry in your life. If you don't recognize him, if you don't know who he is, if you don't recognize what he's trying to do, then you will be in danger of what the Bible warns us about, grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching the Spirit. But when you and I get a clear view of the Holy Spirit, and we understand who he is and what he is doing, all I'm telling you, that unleashes his power in our life. Be not drunk with wine where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. We give the Holy Spirit of God a little bit of time, privacy, and room to apply God's message to our heart. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ. And you've heard about the Holy Spirit and what He does. And you say, man, I would like to have that in my life. I need what you were describing. Well, my friend, the only way to get the Holy Spirit is by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confessing that you are a sinner and that your sin has separated you from God and that you cannot save yourself. 
but believing that Jesus Christ came and died and paid your sins in full on the cross, was buried and rose again to give you new life, and by putting your faith and trust in him and him alone. Is there anybody here today that would say, Pastor, that's what I need to do. I need to trust Jesus. Would you raise your hand up for just a moment? Nobody else looking around. Perhaps you feel the Holy Spirit of God inviting you to accept this invitation. If that's you, while nobody else is looking, just slip your hand up. If you're here today and you're saved, maybe your soul got thirsty for what you were hearing described from God's Word. You know that you're saved and you've put your faith and trust in Christ and you even know that you've got the Holy Spirit of God in you, but you haven't been allowing Him to fulfill all those ministries in your life. And you want a fresh touch. While we understand we only get baptized once, we can be filled every single day. And if we can be filled, that means that we can get low and near empty sometimes. Maybe you're here today and you say, I need, I need to be filled with the Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit to flood my life. I need to hear His voice more loudly. I need to see His direction more clearly. Oh, friend, that's a prayer that God will answer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. It would be impossible for any of us to be saved without you. It would be impossible for us to stay saved. It would be impossible for us to do anything that pleases you. But, oh God, you made it possible through your Holy Spirit for us to be saved and for us to be sealed and secured for all eternity and for us, Lord, to be sanctified and to please you. So, Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to view the Holy Spirit the right way so that he can have free, unlimited access to every area of our life and to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would.